Good morning, church. Today's reading will be in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. That's in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things say the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Ray, thanks for doing our reading. Pastor Josh, worship team, man, what a great song. So good, thank you. Will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come here and we worship you as children to a father. We love you. And we're grateful that you are the perfect Father. You are unconditionally loving towards us, kind to us, generous to us. You instruct us, you guide us, you protect us. Lord, we just thank you. And you, you just want what's best for us. We just thank you for being our Father, our perfect Father. We also thank you for earthly men who have served as fathers and mentors in our lives. We ask your blessing upon them, and we're grateful for them, Lord. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask as your children that you'd speak to us and instruct us, correct us, guide us, even reprimand us if necessary. But may we know your love and your care for us today. As we look into your word, we ask that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, would open our ears and our hearts, not just to hear, but also to obey, that the Holy Spirit might speak words through me that are truthful and honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, speak to us now, we ask, in Jesus' magnificent name, amen. Recently, someone gave me one of those paperback books that is written by a, a popular Christian speaker and writer, one of those books that maybe everybody's sort of reading. And I normally don't read that genre. I prefer books that have stood the test of time, classic books, books written by people like A.W. Tozer, who was a, a pastor in our own denomination, wrote Pursuit of God and Knowledge of the Holy that can be read and reread and passed on, or books by C.S. Lewis like Mere Christianity, or the classic book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which radically changed my walk with the Lord, The Cost of Discipleship. But I thought I'd read it, someone gave it to me, and I've learned when someone gives me a book, I no longer say I promise to read it, 
I say, I promise to look at it, you know. <laughs> so uh, I decided to look at this book, even actually maybe read it. So I was reading it, and as I read it, um, it starts off in the introduction with the author's explanation, really a confession, and how he didn't like church and was dissatisfied with church. So he decided that he would start his own church. You know, he'd start the perfect church, and it would be in his home. And he had three things, three guidelines for this perfect church, and he started, and indeed it was the perfect church, and other people heard that he had the perfect church, so they started coming to the perfect church, and they started telling their friends, and pretty soon this perfect church was a mega church, and he's telling the whole world how to do church, and then suddenly he decides that his perfect church isn't so perfect anymore, and he suddenly unexpectedly resigns and leaves the country and goes overseas to third world countries where he apparently found the perfect church. Poor people who were sharing with one another and and loving on each other. And he said, well, this is the perfect church. But then he felt drawn back to the States. So then he came back to America and wrote a book on how for the last three or four decades, the entire world uh, in America, I mean, America has been doing church wrong. And I thought, wow, I've been in the ministry three or four decades. Hmm." (laughs) And uh, and we're doing it wrong, and now I know how to do it right. And uh, that's where I quit reading the book. (laughs) It's that elusive, perfect church that seemed people seem to be looking for. And, you know, people leave our church because they're not the perfect church, and they go to church down the block. And church down the block, they people leave that church and come to our church because that church wasn't the first. And and we Americans seem to always be looking for the next best thing. If you have an iPhone, I don't even know what number we're on now, but uh, if you don't have the latest iPhone, then you're kind of behind, aren't you? And, and that beautiful iPhone that you bought some years ago, now if it's not the best thing, you're, you're drawn to another iPhone or, or other format if what Android or whatever. Or people tell you, hey, have you seen the new uh, Netflix series? Uh, the next big thing. Or, hey, there's this new exercise regimen you got to get into. It's a video, you know, it's 120 weeks and you do it and you're going to look like, like that. Or uh, the new fad diet. This is the new fad diet. And one fad diet is, you know, you just eat all proteins. And another one, you just, you don't eat protein. I don't know. They're just new diets. And then there's the church fad diet. The latest church thing. This is what church is. This is what church does. If you're not doing this, you're not doing church. But there's something to be said for things that have stood the test of time, that are tried and true. Anyone who with starry eyes idealizes the early church, like this author did, thinking it's the perfect church, And he quotes Acts 4.32 where it says, Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Doesn't seem to understand the context. Do you know why they were sharing? Because they had lost everything. They had been persecuted. They would lost their jobs. And someone says, I have a toaster. Do you have bread? I have bread. Do you have a knife? I have a knife. Do you have butter? I mean, they had to come together to survive. And then anyone that thinks that that's the perfect church hasn't read the next few verses. There's a nice Christian couple in this perfect church who heard that everybody's sharing. They go, we want to share too. But they lied and how generous they were. So God struck them dead. 
And then it says, and everybody else was afraid to go to the perfect church after that. (laughs) Stephen was part of the perfect church. He loved Jesus, so they stoned him to death. And then, if you keep reading beyond Acts, you go to churches like Corinth, the early church. Oh, the early church. They're fighting over who's the best pastor in the church. They're fornicating, even committing incest. They're suing one another in the church. Is is that the perfect? I don't think so. You see, the book of Acts is not a prescription on how to do church. It's a description of what the church did right after it was birthed. And it's learning to walk. You have to go all the way to the book of Revelation before you find the church being evaluated by Jesus Christ and being told a prescription. Not a description, but a prescription on how to do church. But as we saw as we began this series, a large segment of the church leaves out the climactic book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The one that presents Christ, not in his humble humanity, but in his glorified state as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this King of kings of Lord of lords decides to write seven letters to seven individual churches located in the first century in the area of Asia Minor. Sean, can we pull up a slide of that and just to remind us where these seven churches are in what we call Turkey today, across the Adriatic from the country of Greece. And Jesus wrote the second letter to a church in Smyrna. It's located on the coast there. They had a seaport there. And Jesus writes to these seven churches, the number seven in Scripture represents completion. And so by writing to these seven, we can assume that he means this is for all the churches throughout the first century as well as through history as well as today. And as Jesus writes to the second church located in Smyrna, there's something unusual in this letter. He evaluates the church and there's no rebuke. There's no correction. There's no admonishment. There's no criticism. Could it be that this is the perfect church? Jesus evaluates it. Has nothing bad to say about the church? Maybe we should see what the perfect church looks like. Turn with me in your Bibles or in your apps to chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 8. This second letter to the second church starts off this way. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this. The city of Smyrna. It was considered the loveliest of cities in Asia Minor. It was considered the crown of Asia. It was one of the only planned cities in the ancient world. It had been destroyed in 600 B.C. and not 
rebuilt for another 400 years. And when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it with rectangular blocks, straight streets, wide streets. It had a tremendous theater for gathering. It had a stadium where they had athletic games every year, like other parts of the empire at that time in Corinth and Athens. The winner of the games that they had had wouldn't get a medal, but he would get a wreath, a victor's crown, but just a woven wreath that he'd wear on his head to show that he was a victor of the games. They had one street that was called the Golden Street, and the Golden Street led from the Temple of Zeus right to the Temple of Sybil. Let me show you some pictures of the ancient city of Izmir, I mean of of uh, Smyrna, which today is called Izmir. It still exists today. And you'll see here in the foreground some of the ancient ruins of Smyrna, and behind it is the modern city of Izmir in Turkey. And the ruins you see there are the Agora, or the marketplace. And if you look at the arches, now the next slide, these arches down below, it is a basement. And they even had running water going through that trough there. And the next slide we'll show you is one of the broad streets. It still exists from the time that this letter was written, and it's still used today. And as Jesus writes this letter, he says it's to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And we saw previously that this word in English, angel, comes from the Greek word angelos. And angelos just means messenger. And so as he writes this, it's a little unfortunate that we translate it angel because we get a picture of this this angel with wings and we'll see in the context that it's not an angel with wings, it's a human messenger, probably the pastor of the church. Because as the pastor goes, so goes the church. And the pastor is spoken to in these letters and he's to share it with his church. And as we saw last week, and we'll see in every one of the seven letters, that Jesus starts off by giving the people in the church a vision of himself. And the vision of himself that he gives is different to each church designed specifically for their specific situation. And that vision he gives is just a portion of the large vision that has already been given in chapter 1 of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as we saw last week, and I learned from my pastor in high school, we were going through issues or problems in life. The problem's not really the problem, and the answer's not really the answer. Because all of our problems can be alleviated or reduced in intensity or handled well if we get our vision right of Jesus Christ. The problem's not really the problem when you have a marital problem or a family problem or financial problem or attitude problem, whatever it is. The problem really has to do with getting the right vision of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And so Jesus gives a vision of himself and he says, I am the first and the last. Well, why do they need to know that? Well, notice the next verse, verse 9. He says, 
I know your tribulation. And the word your there is singular. Your tribulation. I know your poverty. The word there is singular. He's speaking to the pastor, the messenger, not some angelic being. He says, I know the tribulation you're going through, the poverty you're going through. I want you to know that I'm the first and the last. That I was there before the tribulation began, and I will be there when it ends. And I will go through it with you. I know what you're going through. I am there. The two principles that I want us to learn for our own lives from this passage, and the first one is this. There's an outline in your bulletin. If you happen to be listening online, the outlines are online under that little icon that says PDF. Number one, here it is. Whatever you are going through, Jesus, Jesus is there with you from start to finish. Whatever you're going through today, regardless of how hard it is, Jesus is there with you from start to finish. In the midst of our trials, it's all too easy for our emotions to take over rather than our brains. And so then we start uttering things that are theologically absurd, but they feel right. Things like, Jesus has abandoned me. Well, that's theologically absurd, but it feels like he has. That's the emotions. Or, Jesus doesn't care. That's theologically absurd. But our emotions feel like it's true. Or we might ask, Jesus, where are you? Well, he says, I am the first and the last. I'm in it from the beginning to the end. When you have a problem and and things crash around you, Jesus doesn't go, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. You know, he was there. When things get really, really bad, Jesus doesn't go, yikes, I'm totally out of this one. He is there from the beginning to the end. You might be able to relate to this. Well-meaning Christians ask Jesus for guidance, and they should. They listen to him, and they they feel like the Holy Spirit has has given them guidance, so they, they make a decision based on how they feel God has directed them. They follow his guidance and instruction, And they run into complete disaster. And so they conclude, perhaps, well, maybe I didn't really hear from Jesus in the first place. Or, I knew I heard from him. Look what happened. I'm mad at Jesus. And what further fuels this attitude is that prosperity preacher on television who's always smiling and tells us we should always be happy. Just be like him. Just smile. Everything's good as he takes your money and goes to the bank, smiling. Jesus definitely promises us health, wealth, and prosperity. But his definition of that and his timing of that is quite different than the man that smiles on television. I know that because of our text. It says, I know your, you, singular, pastor, tribulation, your, singular, pastor, poverty, And Jesus gives a little commentary, but you are rich. You are rich. The world thinks you're in poverty. I think you are rich. The Greeks, a lot of those Greeks have two different words for poverty. (laughs) They have one word, penis. Penis means a poor man. It means the man who is a day laborer, and he doesn't have any savings, doesn't have any extra money, but he makes enough money that day to feed his family for that day. No extra, but enough to eat for that day. 
The other Greek word is a Greek word you kind of have to spit to say. It's patochia. <laughs> and patochia also means poverty, but it refers to the man who is completely destitute. Completely destitute. The first word refers to a poor man who has nothing superfluous, nothing extra. The second word refers to the man who has nothing at all. And the word that's used here is the word for complete destitution. The man who has nothing at all. I know your tribulation and your absolute poverty. Your complete destitution by the world's standards. But Jesus says, when I evaluate your life, I think you're rich. Most people evaluate other people in churches by programs, activities, finances, outward things. Jesus judges the heart. He judges the character. The character of the person, the character of the church. And Jesus starts with judging the character of the pastor of the church. It's interesting that the pastor of this church is suffering right along with his people. He's not one of these pastors that gets rich off his people. He too is suffering just like the people in his church. I'm sure the church is crying out to Jesus, and then Jesus answers. He writes them a letter, and their situation is desperate, maybe tragic. And Jesus shows up, and they're thinking, oh, good Jesus here. He's going to fix everything. And Jesus shows up and says, I know it's really bad right now. It's going to get worse, and then you're going to be killed. Wait a minute, that's not quite what we expected to hear. <laughs> Notice, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. The greatest persecution against Christians at this time was not from the Roman government, it was from the Jews. And these are Jews that have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and God says they're not really Jews because they're not following their Messiah. In fact, when they go to the synagogue, it's not a synagogue of God, it's a synagogue of the devil. Wow, that's harsh rebuke. And it goes on to say, do not fear what you are about to suffer, you singular. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you, plural, into prison, that you, plural, may be tested, and you, plural, will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you, singular, the crown of life. Some of the members of this perfect church are going to be thrown into prison. And by prison, we don't mean one of those white-collar crime country clubs or one of those prisons where you get three hot meals a day, cable television, a weight room, air conditioning, and clean sheets. We're topic, talking about a dark, dank, damp dungeon where you are chained until you die from neglect or escorted out to be executed. These are people from the perfect church. And so Jesus reveals to them, I'm the first and the last. 
I was there when all this started. I will be with you to the very end. And that vision of Jesus might be the only comfort these Christians have as they rot in prison, remembering that Jesus is there with them. But it gets worse for this perfect church. He says, you will have tribulation for ten days. Now, does he mean ten literal days? Maybe. Or is this a figure of speech that means for a short period of time? Could be. Or does this mean it's metaphorical referring to the ten periods of Roman persecution that are about to happen? Some people think so. We don't know. All we know is it's going to get worse for a time. It's going to get really bad. And then, in verse 10, going back to the singular, it says, be faithful unto death. It's talking to the pastor. And I will give you, singular, the crown of life. Faithful unto death. Finish well. Keep the faith. Don't bail no matter what happens. I'm the first and the last. Make it to the last with me. Well, who is it that can boldly say, suffer until they kill you? Well, in verse 8, the one who was dead and came to life. Jesus died and came to life. He's been there, done that. He's going, it's not so bad. (laughs) Because death is not the end. You and I have been so influenced by the world around us that we, we tend to view death from the world's standpoint as the end of everything. Instead of, from Jesus' standpoint, as the beginning of everything. Jesus defeated death. There is no fear of death for the believer. That death is a defeated foe. When you and I die, we spring forth into life, into eternal life. And this is the vision that Jesus wants the perfect church to have. That yes, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to get worse. You're going to die, perhaps. And that's not bad. Because you will be born into eternal life. Which brings us to our second principle for us. View your death as the end of all that's bad. The end of all that's bad and the beginning of all that's new. We're going to see in Revelation. He says, I make all things new. Death is the end of what's bad, the beginning of all that's new. The ugliness of death is minimized when the beauty of eternal life is displayed. As Americans, we tend to live our lives as if we're trying to avoid death at all costs. Don't even talk about it. When in reality, we should be dying daily to our flesh, our own sinful ways. We should be sacrificing our lives daily for the good of others and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church in Smyrna receives no rebuke, no admonishment, no correction from Jesus who's evaluating the church. Could it be that the perfect church is also the persecuted church? 
There's a theme that runs through the scriptures. If you look at James chapter 1, James writes to this, verses 2 to 4. And in James 1, 2, he says, Consider it all joy. Rejoice over this. Over what? When you encounter various trials. When life gets hard, be joyful. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, its complete result, that you may be perfect or mature, complete, lacking in nothing. He says the trials are what make you more like Jesus. You hear people sometimes say, oh, I just want to be like Jesus. And I go, have you read the life of Jesus? <laughs> Do you know what he went through? How he was persecuted, he suffered, and he was murdered? Romans chapter 5. Apostle Paul writes to this too. How suffering and persecution and trials go with perfecting. Romans 5 verse 3. Verse 3, and not only this, but we... Also, exult, we rejoice in our tribulation. We rejoice in our tribulations, our hardships, our trials. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. When Jesus goes to judge the perfect church, he doesn't judge the programs, how long the pastor preaches. He doesn't judge the material they use for Sunday school or how they arrange their building or what kind of music they have. He judges their character. And when you stand before Jesus Christ, he's going to judge your character. Because the character you leave this world with is the character you start the next world with. And trials and tribulations and hardships are God's blessing to help prepare you and me for eternity. So if you're still looking for the perfect church, <laughs> understand what you're looking for. You're looking for a church that goes through difficulties, trials, tribulations, perfecting. The Christian watchdog group Open Doors estimates that in 2019, 245 million Christians are currently experiencing high levels of persecution around the world. That's one in nine Christians around the world are being persecuted. They estimate there's an average of 11 Christians who are martyred every single day in the world. A recent report coming out of the United Kingdom states that the persecutions of Christians in the Middle East is, quote, coming close to genocide, end quote. On my recent trip to Greece, I stayed with a couple of our missionaries who work with Middle Eastern refugees. The wife had, had gone to um, the Athens Refugee Center where she works with refugees and come home that day and asked how her day was, typical day. She met with Afghani women and, and was hearing her story. And this Afghani woman and her husband had been in a refugee camp in northern Greece where they had heard the gospel. They'd come to know Jesus Christ. They wanted to be baptized. But because of the presence of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, in the refugee camp in northern Greece, they asked if they could be baptized privately so they wouldn't be killed after their baptism. Persecution is very real. 
Washington Times recently reported that in China, persecution of Christians is at the highest level since Chairman Mao's so-called cultural revolution, where an estimated one and a half to three million people were executed in China. Persecution for the church is very, very real. Well, some 60 years after Jesus wrote this letter to the church in Smyrna, this church produced church history's most famous martyr, the pastor of the church of Smyrna, a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred on Saturday, February 23rd in the year 155 A.D., It was a time of the public games. The whole city was gathered in the stadium to celebrate the games, and someone started chanting, and the crowd picked it up. Away with the atheists! Away with the atheists! Away with the atheists! And the atheists, of course, to them, were the Christians who did not believe in the Roman gods and did not believe that the emperor was Lord. And then someone started chanting, Get Polycarp! Get Polycarp. He was the bishop of the city. Get Polycarp. But they didn't know where he was. So they grabbed a slave and they tortured a slave until that slave revealed where Polycarp was. Roman guard was sent to Polycarp's house. When they got there, the captain looked at Polycarp. He's an old man. He's 86 years old. He felt compassion for him. He's telling him, please, just recant of Christ. Polycarp said, I won't recant, but will you give me an hour to pray? And while you're praying, he asks the people in his home to, to feed the Roman soldiers while he prayed. On the way to the theater, the camp, just the captain just saying, Polycarp, please recant. No, I won't. So he is brought into the arena, and the proconsul, the governor of Smyrna, looked at Polycarp and said, What harm is it just to say Caesar is Lord and to offer a sacrifice to him? Do that, and I'll spare your life. To which Polycarp answered, and I quote, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul was upset and angry, and he said, Well, we're going to burn you at the stake if you don't recant. And Polycarp replied these words, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and an everlasting punishment. Come do what you will. Well, the crowds in the stadium started gathering wood, went to the baths, got wood, went to their workshops, gathered wood for the fire. The people who led it were the Jews. It was the Sabbath. They were breaking the Sabbath to gather wood, but they gathered wood. They put it around a stake in the ground. They brought Polycarp there, and they're getting ready to nail him to the stake. And Polycarp said, leave me as I am. For he who gives me the power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, even out without the security of your nails. So he lit the fire around Polycarp. 
Now, this is where the story might move into legend. We don't know. But the story says that the flame surrounded his body like a tent and refused to consume him. And so the Roman soldier took his sword and thrust it in his side, and he died. But that's not the end. Because we're told in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, excuse me, in verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. This is a special award for those who are faithful to the end. And this crown, this word crown, the Greeks have two words for crown. <laughs> the Adama, which means the royal crown. That's used of Christ in the book of Revelation. It's also used of the false Christ, the Antichrist. But the word that's used here, the Stephanos, is the crown that's made from a wreath that they gave to the victors in the games. And he's saying, you finish the race. You made it to the end. You are a victor. And Jesus himself puts the crown on those who have finished the race well. This could be the perfect church. It's certainly the persecuted church. And we learn from them that whatever you're going through, Jesus is there with you, start to finish. And that we should view death as the end of all that's bad and the beginning of all that's new. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your heads so you can have a private moment. But I'd like you to listen. I'd like to ask you, do you know this Jesus? The one who became dead, but now he's alive. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave. He's offering you eternal life. But you need to decide if you want him in your life. If you never received Jesus into your heart, into your life, if you never by an act of the will have invited him into your life, why not do it right now as our heads are bowed in prayer You can just speak to him and say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life and save me. And he will. Lord, we want to finish well. We want to run the race to the finish. We ask that we would respond to the trials and tribulations and tragedies and difficulties of life with joy, knowing that you're using these things to perfect us and to prepare us, and to make us more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to close with 1 Corinthians 15, 58, just a very fitting benediction for our morning. It says, and I pray, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Awesome. Have a great Sunday, and fathers, happy Father's Day.